G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Explained. Today, I've got a really exciting guest, Simon from Your Maintenance Coach. I'll get him to explain what a maintenance coach is and, and what his, how he would fit in. Today, we're gonna to be talking a little bit about the food industry, firstly in general, but then we're also gonna talk about uh, food grade lubricants and how they're used, how they're registered and all that kind of stuff. Simon has a bit of a specialty in the food industry, works with a lot of clients in the food industry, especially in Australia. And so he's got a lot of insights into maintenance and reliability practices within the food industry. So Simon, if you'd like to introduce yourself and what you do. Sure, thanks Rafe. So yes, Simon Murray from Your Maintenance Coach. And look, my background's always been maintenance, engineering in, in manufacturing and set up your maintenance coach back in 2012 now, so just coming up to, to 10 years, with the purpose of worked with a few companies, really taking them out of reactive into proactive maintenance. And I found that, I, look, I really enjoyed that. So I founded the business to go and help other businesses, other maintenance managers go through that journey. Now, obviously, when you've been through any journey time after time, there's you learn a few shortcuts, you learn the, the quickest way to do it. And what I do now is I engage with businesses, particularly maintenance managers who want to really ramp up their reliability practices and almost like that, that Sherpa carrying your bags, help them along the way and, and coach them through that process. Cool. Cool. Maybe just something to pick up on there, because I know there's all sorts of different names for different types of maintenance. You talked about the difference between reactive and proactive. And then there's reactive, proactive, predictive. Is do you go, do you see it very much as being a, a kind of a journey? So that once people have gone from reactive to proactive, is there anything you know beyond that you try to go to? Oh, look, I think there's there's always this chasing this best practice. What does best practice look like? And when you look at the businesses that consider themselves best practice, they're the ones that are still trying to to achieve more. And I always come back, I used the example, I was fortunate enough to visit the, the Toyota factory down here in, in Melbourne just before it closed down, with probably two weeks before it shut down. And we're walking around and it, it, was like there was, it was like there was a crisis meeting going on. And when we asked what it was, this crisis meeting was because the day before they'd achieved 96% uptime on a line. And as I say, even two weeks before the factory was closing, that was just chaos. It's we must drive for more. So that's that's the epitome of where I think businesses can get to. But I think largely a lot of the a lot of the people I work with, it's very much in those early stages. It's how do we how do we even shape how do we embed that mindset so that we can start on that journey? And you were starting from reactive, where phone calls in the middle of the night, it's all breakdowns. Then we progress to this little bit of a bit of a sense of calm where we're you know, we're still getting breakdowns, but we, we've got a good handle on our systems and some processes and structures are in place. And then, as you say, we get to that full proactive stage where, you know, and even going back five, six years ago, that proactive stage was still very, um, still very human. Now we're looking at Internet of Things and it being mm. completely automated. So there's always new ways to continue on that improvement journey. Yeah, okay. That's that that Toyota example is fascinating, right? Cuz that's a whole behavioral kind of mindset and culture yeah. around maintenance and reliability to be able to to still pursue that level of excellence when you're 2 weeks from class. That's it. And even as I say even at 96% uptime, even then chasing those last couple of percent when you and it's the law of diminishing returns, mm. but it was as you say it's just baked into that culture that we strive to work out how we can do better each day. 
Yeah, wow. All right, so let's start with the food industry and maybe a, a little bit of a general opener on the state of the food industry. So like many industries, I'm sure it went through a lot of disruptions as a result of COVID. So most industries have gone through different changes in supply and demand. I guess one thing with the food industry is that generally everyone has been eating the same amount. It's not like people eat less or more on a given day, unlike, let's say, for example, the transportation industry or airlines or something like that. But have there have you seen any changes in the way that the food industry has had to operate? Yeah, very much so. There's, you know, I think most people, most manufacturers were hit with this sort of you know, the panic buying, the big surge mm. where, where instantly there was this just massive ramp up of let's just make whatever we can and get it out the door because we know we can sell it. So that was seen very much in the early stages where it was just, how do we get this stuff out? Then what, what I've seen happen probably, probably as things started to settle a little is a real change in what, what is being supplied. And this one came as quite a, a surprise to me because you know, if you think of a, a crisp manufacturer, a chip manufacturer, for example, lots of the product is actually smaller bags that might go away to the office or go to school kids. Mm. None of that exists anymore. So what they're actually seeing is this big change from like even a multi-pack product or a small serve or single serve type products that would go in someone's school bag or briefcase to now everything is the, the big family size packs or big tubs of something. So it's been a real shift in that. And obviously some of these sites are actually geared up to produce the right balance. So they've seen in some cases they've got lines sat idle and other lines sat double the capacity. So it's created a real interesting dynamic, seeing a lot of people trying to adapt to that to balance their production needs across equipment. So a real shift in that. And I suppose the, 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 the third thing I'm starting to see is the supply chain issues with things coming from overseas. Yeah. And a lot of that, some of that is, is packaging equipment, for example. So lots of people now trying to, trying to source their packaging materials in Australia rather than having them in. And lots of you know, businesses even looking to where they were buying in finished goods from overseas, now looking to see how can we make them here. So lots of changes yeah, right. um, and, and challenges, you know, the biggest, I would say the biggest challenge I, I see pre-COVID, most of my time was spent on site, tinkering and training and, and actually being out there looking and feeling what's going on. I would say by far most, the, the biggest challenge I'm seeing people face is just the having to deal with the complexity of what's going on. So there's lots of, lots of projects I'm working on where people are saying to me, look, we know it's a good idea. We want to do it. We need to do it. But I've just got too much going on at the moment, just trying to get through the day with all this other complexity of who's going to turn up on shift, what machines have we got to run. So it's really, it's impacted, I think, a lot in, i say, just that extra thought and the extra thinking and the extra projects people are having to do. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. A couple of things to pick up on there as well. One of them, I think, was you discussing the flexibility in people's manufacturing lines. So I give the example that I was working with a toilet paper manufacturer and people go to the toilet the same amount pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. The pandemic doesn't affect no. how much you go to the toilet. But of course, we had those, excuse the pun, a run on, on toilet where people were going out and panic buying and the toilet paper manufacturers are not set up for any kind of flexibility in their manufacturing process because they're used to churning out the same amount of paper day in, day out. And there was also a bit of a change in the types of toilet paper. So 
yeah, if you really dig into it, toilet paper for the hospitality industry is is quite different to what is sold in the home. And like you were saying, less fewer sales into the schools and offices and hotels and things, and more into people's households. They were just they were just blown away by by the sudden changes over the course of a couple of months. Um, so it's interesting to to know as well that in food manufacturing you might have different manufacturing lines for the same product that's getting just packed differently that's it yeah that's that, that's really interesting yeah um, and there's also as you say things like hospitality you know, i've got quite a few clients who do um, food service industry for example that's just vanished so they're and some of them been really interested the ones i've seen really adapt are, okay we're not doing food service in a big box now let's put things in bags and adapt through to woolies and coals and through the supermarkets because Again, to some advantage, the because of that ramp up, the existing suppliers haven't been able to meet full demand. Yeah. So in, in many cases, it's balanced itself out across the sector. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. So maybe we could ask uh, you about some of the unique challenges that face the food industry when it comes to maintenance and reliability. So I know you work across all industries, <laughs> but you've got quite a few clients in, in the food industry specifically. So there are some maintenance and reliability challenges that are, I would say, unique. They're common to everyone. But mm-hmm. what's unique about the food industry? Yeah, okay. So the biggest thing that I see come through, and I've had this, it's funny, I've had this discussion probably three or four times this week, and it's not, it's, it really brings itself out in the food industry. And it's because it's driven particularly those people who are producing stuff that doesn't sit in a warehouse for six, seven months. Mm. So lots of my clients are daily fresh. So bakeries, dairy, for example, they're really driven by what the supermarkets demand. So where if we look at, let's take the other extreme of something like an airline or a mine or a, a gas plant, which really asset intensive industries, when the maintenance is due on a piece of equipment, the business understands we're going to shut down and we're going to do that maintenance. An airline doesn't say, look, we've got this maintenance due, but maybe we'll run the airline, maybe we'll run the plane for an extra couple of months. That just doesn't happen in that industry. When you flip to the food industry, um, and I think any any sort of lower, low intensity manufacturing, but particularly the food industry, do we supply all of our product to the supermarket tomorrow or do we stop for 12 hours and do maintenance? Well, guess what? The decision is to supply the supermarkets every single day. And what that means is the maintenance team has to be very dynamic in how they deal with that. It's not a 10,000 hour service. We're going to stop and do it. You've got to work out how do you break that 10,000 hour service down into small one hour chunks and fit it in. Maybe it's on a Wednesday night shift where why we're cleaning the machine. Maybe it's the weekend. So you've got to be really dynamic because that pressure is on about supply and the the example i often use i spent a lot of time with baking bread in the in the baking industry and over the years the big players used to have small bakeries in all the different regional towns and over the years that's been consolidated into almost super plants in the capital cities but what that means is your average delivery driver one factory for example big bakery in sydney and we're delivering out to dubbo which is a five-hour drive away Now, for the truck driver to get there and back within his sort of legal hours, he's got no window of the truck has to leave on time. So from a manufacturing perspective and a maintenance perspective, you've got about a 15 minute window to get that truck loaded. So if you have a 30 minute breakdown, that city, that town doesn't get any bread for the day. 
So these are the complexities where you've got, how do we keep our PMs up to scratch? How do we do our preventative and our inspections? while at the same time, we've just got to keep everything running. Okay, that's an insight that I <laughs> consider actually, was how the effects of consolidation on supply chain. That's interesting. So how is some of this maybe driven also by the economics of the industry? For the international viewers in Australia, there was a lot of news and a lot of headlines probably about, what, five years ago, about the way that dairy farmers were being mm-hmm. so squeezed on margins by the big supermarket chains. So we effectively only have two supermarket options here. You've got Coles and Woolworths and they dominate the industry. I know Aldi's sort of making a bit of a play. But what we were finding was that they have so much market power that they were able to to squeeze out a lot of these independent farmers. So is that the case across the entire food industry? Or do they maybe have a few more options? Look, I think it's... It's certainly a challenge there. You know, I I see a lot of, and this again is because our sort of domestic market in Australia is is relatively tiny to the rest Mm. of the world. We're what, 20, 20, 25 million people. So it's in some countries, it's a, we're a major city or a a small town in some countries. Those, what, what I'm certainly seeing is there are probably, there's actually very few manufacturers left over here who only make their own brands most businesses have had to adapt to but the supermarkets if you look at their sales and i I forget the numbers but maybe 40 maybe even 50 percent of their sales is what they call their home branded products so it's not the big name brands so that's one thing that's changed is most of the manufacturers who've adapted they're actually got their own brand names but they're also made the brands under license the second point i'd make on that is even some of the major manufacturer or what we consider manufacturers or big global brands even some of those don't manufacture themselves anymore so there is lots and lots and, and certainly many of my clients are third-party manufacturers that would manufacture, yes, we're manufacturing directly for the supermarkets under their brand, but hey, we also manufacture for this big global well-known brand name because they don't have manufacturing set up in Australia anymore. And a lot of that has been driven through those pricing, those pricing forces that you described in that there's, you know, and I won't, won't name them here, but certainly there's a lot of global brands that have shut down their factories because they know, hang on, we're really good at branding and marketing. We're not that good at the manufacturing piece. However, this family business over here that's grown over the years, they're really good at that piece. So let's partner up with them and give them that work. So okay. lots of it's driven, as you say, it really is driven by those supermarkets. It's just such a, it's just such a, a big chunk of the market for everybody. Yeah, to draw an, uh, an analogy to the to lubricants world, because that kind of private label business is very common in lubricants manufacturing. You buy a grease tube or a, a pail of lubricant, and it, it's got whatever brand on it. Yep. That's not necessarily who manufactured it, right? And there's a whole industry of lubricant and grease manufacturers that make private label products. In fact, uh, the one that was in the news recently, if you saw the fire at the grease plant over in the US, Uh, where there was a whole grease plant that burnt to the ground and no one really recognized the name. They were called Chemtool, which was owned by the Lubrizol Corporation, who is a kind of an additive manufacturer, who are actually owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So eventually (laughs) Warren Buffett owned this this plant so he can afford the loss. But they, no one recognized the brand because they predominantly make private label um, Mm -hmm. stuff. Some of the vehicle OEMs or farm equipment OEMs, they were making their kind of branded greases and lubricants. So yeah, I think Mm -hmm. that's, 
maybe a trend that we're seeing across a, a whole range of industries. That's it. And I, and I know, and again, very Australia specific, you've got your Aldi is the, the super global supermarket chain. Now that's making big headway here, but obviously the, there are manufacturers who I would say 80, 90% of their product just goes into so it's yeah. the Aldi brand. And one thing I've seen in the past there is they I went through a project this many years ago now, but they were actually working with local suppliers to see okay, how can we help you invest in equipment so that we don't have to bring all this stuff in from different countries around the world and we can manufacture it locally to improve the supply chain process. So there's lots of stuff going on there as well. We, we do give those big supermarkets a, a bad name in many cases, but in some cases they actually, they do a lot to support, to support local manufacturing as well. Yeah, okay. So if we pivot a little bit from maybe general maintenance and reliability mm. specifically to lubricants in the food industry, um, yeah. What are maybe some of the specific concerns in the lubes, or in lubrication that people have to look out for in, in the food industry? Yeah, okay. So where do we start? Because it's on the one side knowing what we should be doing, and then it's the, and I'm sure you see it's the other side is looking at what people are actually doing. A lot of, so a lot of what, a lot of what I'm seeing, let's go back 10 years. Mm -hmm. I would say that was probably just when people were starting to think, okay, we need to start being, thinking about food grade lubrication here. Now, certainly go back to people I was working with 10 years ago, just as I was starting the business, it was a, you know, I'd walk into a plant and it's like, okay, we use food grade where we absolutely have to. And the concerns there were, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this now, Rafe, is it's more expensive and it's not as good. So that was the initial thing and, and it was very much, we don't want to use it. We, we're going to do everything we can and we're only going to use it where we need to use it. So yeah, is that, and, and that was probably 10 years ago. Over that time period now, what we've started to see happen is as our external audits have been, been coming up more and more, and particularly in the food industry, one of the, one of the real things, one of the real important points around lubrication is that even though the site itself might not be lubrication experts. We've got the, the customers, the amount of audits and assessments from a quality perspective that happen now. There's some driven by the supermarkets, some driven by sort of external bodies. It's really, that's really dragged lubrication practices into the, into the modern day. So a manufacturer, as we discussed, the third party manufacturer, they're not gonna get away with not using food grade lubrication anymore. So it's almost become a, it must happen. The challenge with that I see is that it's become a, we must use food grade lubricant, but without the real understanding of making that transition or are we using the right stuff or how to use it. So it's really that case of, okay, as a maintenance manager in a, a food manufacturing facility, I must use food grade lubrication. That's it. But that's almost where the, that's almost where they stop. So the, the challenge, it almost, because there's just too much else going on. Yeah. So that's, that almost becomes, I use food grade lubricant, tick the box. Okay, that, that, that's interesting. Cause, so maybe to go back to your sort of first point, which was on, let's say the perceived lack of performance mm. that you get out mm -hmm. of food grade lubricant. So this is actually a concern that is, is common, well, that I've seen anyway, is common to both food grade lubricants as well as what we might bucket as the environmentally aware lubricants or EALs. Mm. So there's a whole class of those as well and there, there are perceptions of poor performance in that area as well. 
Yep. So they're the ones that are, you know, readily biodegradable and low toxicity and all that kind of stuff. So in some ways, very similar to the food industry. And I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, let's say, poor reputation comes out because there's kind of two classes. There's two ways that you can do biodegradable or food grade lubricants. So one is, so as a start, mineral oils in general are not going to do well as either biodegradable or food-based lubricants because being that they're manufactured from crude oil, you tend to have some toxic components to it, which is usually the aromatics that they're trying to pull out during the, the refining process. So that drives you to two ends of the spectrum. You either go full synthetic for your lubricants or you go vegetable oil-based. And one of those is the lower end of the performance spectrum where you go vegetable oils. And one of them is the higher end of the spectrum, which you go full synthetic. And of course, there's a huge cost difference then between the two. Mm. So often, I think, when people see the disparity in cost, there's the, uh, especially if you're running pretty razor thin margins, a lot of maintenance organizations go, there is no way we're p- paying for a full synthetic food lubricant solution. Let's go with the vegetable oil based one, which is so much cheaper. But then the performance that you get out of it is so much worse. Yeah. And so that reinforces the perception that the food grade or the biodegradable is significantly worse when it doesn't necessarily have to be. So I think that there is that definitely that performance perception. I think you've hit the nail on the head then. I think now that we've moved to people saying, okay, we know we need food grade. And fortunately, most people have moved away from this. Let's just use it where we need to. And we've actually you know, realized we can use we can now use food grade in non-food grade places to consolidate the amount of uh, products we've got on the shelf. But even now then I see what we've almost created is, okay, we're using food grade uh, product. It's still that purchasing on price decision, even within that narrow band. So I think we've almost the driver is, as I say, it's food grade tick. We're not really peeling back the layers and looking at the performance levels of the products we're buying in every case. Now, some of the more advanced, the more mature maintenance organizations certainly are. Yep. Um, but lots of the others, it's very much a case of, you know, it's food grade, I've ticked that box, I'll just pump it into the bearing and away we go. That's not necessarily product related, that's about the education, the training and the coaching piece. Yeah, and I guess maybe just one thing to pick up on as well, which is really important is, okay, now that you've put food grade lubricants into the application, your responsibility doesn't end there. I think there is (laughs) one of the other misnomers maybe in the industry is, oh, it's food grade, therefore basically I can eat it or I can drink it, (laughs) which is definitely not the case. So if it's, you know, like a brief sidebar into the classification system. So if it's NSF H1 certified, that allows you're trying to avoid contamination of the final product wherever possible but if contamination does occur you're allowed what is it 10 milligrams per kilo of food product so even then the allowable levels are vanishingly small right so this is very incidental contact with the final product so it yeah once you've put food grade lubes into a bearing or hydraulic system or whatever it is still have a responsibility to prevent it getting into the food product yeah <laughs> that's a, certainly not to be considered as an ingredient yeah and i think that's excuse me, it is it is a big risk that people there is that level of comfort almost that's sort of illusion that it is safe when it's it's not as you say it's not safe it's just the it's that that tolerance is still yeah. um 
and and I don't think that's widely appreciated as um, as much as it. So maybe if we could talk, not that we're trying to use a carrot and a stick or anything like that, but <laughs> what what are the kind of uh, ramifications for getting it wrong, in in the sense that you you talked about there's a lot of plant audits that are let's say conducted by whoever the end user is. So you talked about third-party manufacturers making on behalf, a product on behalf of, a, let's say, a brand, and that yeah. brand is therefore going to do audits of the manufacturing facility. Do they do, let's say, random sample testing of the final product to ensure that there's no you know, nasties, for want of a better word, in it? How do they ensure the sort of the quality of the final product in, in most? Yeah, time? they really, the different audits, I suppose they vary. So there are some which are literally auditing your internal processes mm-hmm. to make sure you have a process. And this is, you know, very similar to 9001, I think it is. Yep. It's your, your basic quality system. Yeah, you've got a system, I can see it works. But that, that level of audit doesn't necessarily validate if what you've got in that system is the right thing. Okay. The next level of audit I've seen is where, and this was a one popular over here is the BRC audit, British Retail Consortium. And and it depends on the auditor sometimes too. So I've had an auditor there where they said, okay, let's go through your maintenance processes, show everything's in line. And some auditors, depending on their background, will actually delve into, okay, I can see you've got a preventative maintenance system. Let's actually have a look at if you're doing the right maintenance on that machine. Do I actually think you're doing the right stuff? And that's where you think, hang on a minute, that's a, that's almost a whole different different scenario. So some auditors will push through that. There is a, what's the other one? I think it's the American, there's an American Bakery Association. They do random audits. So they, depending on who you're supplying to, and I've got a couple of clients over here in Australia who who have their set up this way, they can just knock on your door and say, it's audit time, no preparation time. Let's see what you're doing today. So they can be, um, and of course, when an audit comes to town, it's chaos on site. And they, so they're the different kind of levels. And within that, some will do products. Everyone, each of the customers are doing product. Most manufacturers, in fact, are doing taste tests each day. Lots of things going off for, you know, micro analysis, shelf life testing, to the extent of whether or not they're testing for actual contamination of things like grease and and oils. I've not come across that yet, but certainly lots of lots of visual testing, lots of most places, metal detectors and x-rays are obviously commonplace. Hmm. Lots of taste tests, lots of mold and microbiological testing. Yep. So yeah, they do, they do lots. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting. I've done a bit of work with the, the fisheries industry and there've been a couple of questions come up in the past about that they've, they've found, let's say hydrocarbons in a product sample and they're going through and doing an audit of where it could have come from. And of course, it could have been lubricants, but we were able to show them that it wasn't. But because it's in the fisheries industry and you're on a fishing vessel, there's all kind. Of, it could be <laughs> diesel from the engine room or whatever. So, yeah, I was just curious uh, as to how that happens. Yeah, yeah that, and the, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, most of the plants now, unless you're working on kind of older equipment, most have been through some sort of risk assessment where gearboxes are now below the food stream. So when anything, any factory or piece of equipment that's been built in the last 10 years, the risk of contamination is very low. Usually it's around if you've got some sort of mixing or filling area where the product is in direct contact with something, that's normally where it's going to occur. 
Um, and then the risk of contamination through the rest of a production line where you've got open product on conveyors and things like that, that's really been minimized now over the years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one question that I, I do like to ask people, and because this is what this uh, channel <laughs> is all about, is trying to raise the profile of lubrication and lubrication technologies. Because mm -hmm. it's something that, in my experience, you go around to almost any industry and they don't they don't view it as being particularly high in importance. So in the food industry, how do you perceive, first of all, where they see lubricants? You've talked mm -hmm. a little bit about it already, but also how do you think we as an industry can help to drive, I guess, people's understanding of where it should fit? Yep, that's a great question. So the it is that journey. So overall, it I would say you know we're the value and the importance of lubrication is, is it's not well understood. It's to me it is it's where I always I start. So if I go into a plant or I'm working with a business, show me your lubrication survey. Oh, we haven't got one. Okay, it, that means too that the importance of that survey to me it ticks a couple of boxes. One is one is around the lubrication piece. But more importantly for me, a really good lubrication routing means I've got somebody looking at every piece of equipment every day. Mm. And that's eyes and ears on the ground. When someone tells me we don't have a lubrication routing or our lubrication routing is it's buried in our PM system and different fitters get different pieces of it every week, that tells me you're not getting that consistent eyes and ears on the ground. Mm. So the teams go and work with someone, got plenty of clients, they say, okay, we've got one person dedicated to lubrication. That's a step forward. So you've got the same person doing the same routing every day or every week. He's understanding, he can see the changes in equipment. But the biggest challenge I see with at the moment is that we undervalue that person. We look, mm. let's get someone minimum wage. He's only pumping grease into the bearing. Can't be that hard. So we underinvest in that role when it's probably one of the most important roles in the business. Yeah. Being able to, so that's the first challenge. And the, the businesses that get this right, they pick you a good lubrication technician who's diligent. He can see the differences, and then they, they invest in some of the training around that. So that's from the the human side, from the I suppose the product and the technical side. Same thing, and we've touched on this, It's oh, if it's food grade, it must be okay, it's just grease. Yeah. And that's that in, in some, not all businesses, that's that education piece around what goes into the product, how can it actually help improve reliability? And, and as I said, most, most of my work's with these businesses who are pushing out of reactive into So nearly always when I start with a business, the, the lubrication system is immature. And we got to take them on that journey. And we, we do that by starting to track, okay, for every breakdown we have, is it could it have been prevented by better lubrication? And as we start tracking that, you really start to see to see a picture. You'll speak to people, oh, the bearing collapsed. Bearings don't just collapse. You know, they, <laughs> I can't remember who it is who says it's bearings don't fail, they're murdered. I love that one. But it's, no, it just happened randomly. No, it, it didn't just happen randomly. <laughs> So that's the education piece around the product that we're putting in. And that's, as I say, that's starting to improve for, um, yeah, as you say, and look, from an industry perspective, why are we in that position or why are manufacturers in that position and, and not moving to the advanced stages? And I think it's because we have, particularly here in Australia, I would say 90% of lubrication people, businesses, people you can go to for help, 
also sell oil. Yeah. And it's actually very difficult to get, to phone someone up and get some trusted advice knowing you're not going to be sold to. And of course, as maintenance managers, we go through our careers, we build relationships with different suppliers and vendors. And I've got suppliers and trusted people I've worked with for the last 20 years, and I know I just won't go anywhere else. But sometimes it's difficult to start those relationships. If you, I just need to know this technical aspect. I don't want to buy your stuff. I don't want to change my oil supplier. I just need this technical knowledge. And here, the market we've got at the moment, those two things often come really related. Maintenance managers are often fearful to reach out for the fear of being sold to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, there, there is, there's not much, like you say, no. advice that you can that you can reach out to. Yeah, and I, one thing that I, I should, it'd be remiss of me not to mention as well on the product side, just because something says that it's food grade doesn't necessarily mean that it's food grade. So for anyone who's listening to this, who is involved in the lubrication industry, the, the one thing you need to look for the NSF H1 certified that's like the standard for food grade lubricants and greases. Uh, so if you go onto the NSF website, they have a full listing of all the approved products. And so if you see something that says safe for use in food or something like that, it's, it's worth going to check it. I'm not trying to give the industry a bad name or anything like that, but there is, I have seen instances where manufacturers are claiming food safe without having gone through the registration process. So mm -hmm. just, Something that I, I, I thought I should get out there. I, at some stage, I'll do a video specifically on the registration process and, and what makes a food grade lubricant and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, to go into the more technical aspects. But um, yeah. also seeing as well now, Rafe, is lots of certain businesses with halal certification. And yeah. you know, there's lots of other certifications that are coming along now in addition to, to the food grade. I had a client many years ago and they were a completely nut-free site. So no nuts, no gluten. There was a few other things that they, and their, for their audit purposes, they had to demonstrate that all their lubrication met those needs as well. So mm. trying, trying to get a certificate of a nut-free manufacturing environment from your lubrication supplier is quite a challenge because obviously they've never, of course there's no nuts here, but how do we demonstrate that to you? How do we go through that audit process? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So to maybe to pick up a little bit on that. So first of all, yeah, halal and kosher certifications have a little bit more common, certainly in Australia, mm -hmm. obviously in other parts of the world, it's standard practice. And so people might be asking the question, what kind of ingredient in, in, in grease or lubricant could be non-halal? And the reason is because there are some additives which are derived from animal fats. And that's generally where you get the non-kosher, non-halal elements that might come into a food grade lubricant or grease. So that's how you would not pass a halal or, or kosher test. Obviously, with some of the more kind of synthetic-based ones, it's a little bit easier to pass those certifications. But then when you talk about audits of where your product comes from. So, because the halal and kosher certifications have got to do with the manufacturing process for the lubricant or grease to ensure that it was manufactured in a halal or kosher environment. Mm -hmm. And maybe just going back to the, the quality side, there is actually a separate ISO standard that go, sits alongside NSF H1. It's called ISO 214. Six, nine, I think I'd have to look up that number but it is a manufacturing standard where the lubricant manufacturer is audited to its 
manufacturing standards to ensure that the quality of the product is food grade and will be consistently food grade. So again, when you are looking to procure your food grade lubricants, that might that certification might be something that you look for in your lube oil supplier. So anyway, this, that's just layers on layers, right? <laughs> of of audits and certifications. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, hey, Simon, I really appreciate you coming uh, to talk about this. I'm sure if people have questions or comments, please leave them below. I'm sure uh, Simon will be eager to see some of the questions that come through and, and I will as well, because often they're prompts for either you know further interviews or, or videos that I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I really appreciate your time and your insight because you've got a window into the food industry that I haven't really had all that much exposure to. So really appreciate your time and thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rafe.